You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. This is a story about two men, a man who can't even, as the kids say, and a man who apparently can't take no for an answer. At least not a no from the man who can't even. The man who can't even, Adam Rippon. Now, in fairness to Rippon, he can. The dude can figure skate and he can win championships. He's the 2016 U.S. national champion and he won the 2008 and 2009 World Junior Championships and a bunch of other big figure skating championships. Rippon is competing at the Winter Olympics for the United States and South Korea. He's also... Hotter than hell, and he can and does post a lot of shirtless selfies to his Instagram account, instagram.com slash A-D-A-R-I-P-P. You can and you should follow him. The man who can't take no for an answer, Mike Pence, former governor of Indiana, formerly a member of Congress, currently the vice president of the United States. Pence is a religious conservative slash religious bigot who has used his power to harm gay people whenever and wherever an opportunity to do harm has presented itself. Pence voted against the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell when he was a member of Congress. He opposed marriage equality, gay people adopting children, opposed that too. He's voted against laws to protect LGBT people from discrimination. He signed a bill into law when he was governor of Indiana that would allow people to discriminate against gays and lesbians so long as they remembered to scream sincerely held religious beliefs and not, I hate you fucking queers, when doing so. And he famously perhaps most famously, demanded that HIV-AIDS education funds be spent on conversion therapy programs instead. Not for nothing did Donald Trump quote-unquote joke that Mike Pence wants to hang all gay people. So, Adam Rippon, who again is competing for the United States at the Winter Olympics, which are just getting underway in Pyeongchang, South Korea, and good luck to you, Adam. Adam, in addition to being a champion figure skater, is the first openly gay man ever selected to compete for the United States at the Winter Olympics. Guess who else is going to the Olympics? Mike Pence. He heads the official U.S. delegation to the Winter Olympics. And traditionally, U.S. athletes, all of them, meet with the head of the U.S. delegation. But Rippon, he's not interested in meeting Mike Pence because he's offended at Mike Pence's support for conversion therapy. Rippon is offended that Mike Pence doesn't think Rippon, as a gay man, should exist. He said this to USA Today during an interview which he also said he's not interested in meeting not just Pence, but anyone who's gone out of their way to not only show that they aren't a friend to gay people, Rippon said, but who think gay people are sick. Now, Mike Pence made the mistake of denying that he ever supported conversion therapy, and Rippon took to Twitter, where he posted the receipts, as you kids like to say. Links and screen grabs to Pence's old campaign website, where, yes, Mike Pence came out in support of defunding HIV-AIDS education and prevention programs that actually work and save gay people's lives and demanded the money instead be spent on gay conversion therapy programs that do not work, unless you count pushing vulnerable young people to suicide as working, which Mike, hang the gays, Pence probably does. You'd think Pence would have learned his lesson, taken Rippon's no for an answer and left the 28-year-old figure skater alone, but Mike Pence asked the U.S. Olympic Committee to set up a private meeting between him and Rippon in South Korea, which Rippon rejected because he can't, can't even, he can't even, he won't even meet privately 
with the vice president of the United States. So Mike Pence, a bigot spurned, took to Twitter himself and tweeted directly to Ripon at Ada Rip. I want you to know we are for you. Don't let fake news distract you. I am proud of you. Mike Pence is for Adam Rippon. Unless Adam Rippon wants to serve in the military, get married, have children, learn how to protect himself from HIV, not face discrimination at the hands of religious bigots on the basis of sexual orientation, or be gay at all. Other than that, Mike Pence is totally for Adam Rippon. It's kind of pathetic. I mean, Ripon isn't the first athlete who's refused to meet with Mike Pence and or Donald Trump. Super Bowl champions, World Series champions, NBA champions, they've all refused to go to the White House and make nice with these bigots. Ripon isn't the first. But somehow, oddly, Mike Pence just can't stand the thought of this hot and often shirtless young gay male figure skater refusing to be alone with him in a room. Makes you go, hmm. You know, Mike Pence, like a lot of anti-gay bigots, doesn't want people out there who aren't anti-gay bigots to think he's an anti-gay bigot. And he probably, like a lot of them, likes to think that he has gay friends. Maybe he thinks the guy who did his daughter's hair at her wedding is a gay friend of his. A lot of powerful anti-gay politicians want to live in a world where they can be viciously shitty to gay people and gay people will play nice with them in return or feel obligated to smile for a photo in order to show respect for whatever office the bigot happens to hold. And then the anti-gay bigots turn around and point to those photographs to prove that they're not anti-gay bigots. Hey, don't look at the policies I've backed or the attacks I've waged on gay people. Look at this picture, this picture of me and a known homosexual smiling at each other. Look, here's a picture of me shaking hands with a gay person. And do you know what gay people do with their hands? They touch themselves down there. Sometimes they touch other homosexuals down there. Sometimes they put their entire hands inside other homosexuals. And I touched it. How could I be a bigot? That's the game Pence wanted to play, but Ripon can't even, won't even play along. And for that, I got to say, Adam Ripon, you are the Olympic hero the gay community has been waiting for. The gay athlete, ready, willing, and able to take a stand, to stand up for himself and all of us during the games, not after. The 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, gold medalist Tommy Smith and bronze medalist John Carlos during the awards ceremony, raised their fists in the Black Power salute. It was a galvanizing moment at the height of the African-American movement for civil rights. I have been waiting all my adult gay life for a gay Olympian to take a stand at the Olympics. And Adam Rippon, you took a stand at and before the Olympics. And for that, we are all so grateful and so proud of you. And we're all rooting for you. And everyone out there who can hear the sound of my voice... Y'all should be following him on Instagram. Take my word for it. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A, and on the Magnum subscription edition of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com, twice as long and no ads. Justin Lay Miller of Ball State University and the Kinsey Institute joins us for a what you got to talk about the results of his brand new cockolding study. All that coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I was driving around today and I was thinking about something about our president. I'm one of those cultural Catholics and I'm starting to notice that a lot of these evangelical priests are really comfortable with the idea of our president being very flawed. They're starting to forgive him. They're starting to talk about the fact that he was a different person younger in 2006 and 2005 when he was having these affairs. 
is it possible that this guy may actually push our efforts to make Christians and Catholics more flexible? Is that possible? Because holy shit, if we can get any benefit off this guy, God, that would be great. You've heard the expression, or perhaps the acronym for the expression, I-O-K-I-Y-A-R. Sometimes you see that on blogs and bulletin boards, and sometimes you see that on Twitter. Sometimes I tweet that out. I-O-K-I-Y-A-R. It's okay if you're a Republican. There are things that Republicans don't mind if other Republicans do. Think of Donald Trump. Think of all the shit that he's pulled in his first year in office. Think of all of the profiteering, the collusion, the violations of the emolument clause, to say nothing of the whole Russia affair, obstruction of justice, all the firings at the FBI. If Clinton had won the White House and farted at a state dinner, she would have been impeached for that. But Trump is not getting any grief from the Republican Party for any of this shit because the Republican Party, a deeply hypocritical pile of assholes, who have a long-ass list of double-fucking standards. You've got evangelical leaders like Tony Perkins out there right now saying, oh, Donald Trump paid a porn star $130,000 in the waning days of the 2016 election to keep her mouth shut about the affair they had when his latest kid, born to his third wife, was born and his wife was home recovering from the birth. He had the affair with the porn star, paid her hush money in the wake of the election. He gets a mulligan for that, says Tony fucking Perkins, a Democrat will get into office and a Democrat will have had an erection once in his life that wasn't pointed directly at his wife. And Tony Perkins will call for him to be impeached, to thrown out of the example he's setting for the country, for the children. Oh, my God, the moral crisis in our leadership. No, no, no. It's all going to revert to normal because this is not about any sort of consistency, evangelical Christians and what they will put up with or permit or smile at or excuse or enable Roy fucking Moore in Alabama? Did you follow that shit? Yeah, no, we will see no benefit from Donald fucking Trump having squatted his orange goddamn ass down in the Oval Office. There will be no long-term benefit. None, zilch, nada. Stop looking for silver linings. There aren't any. Hi, Dan. I have a question about turning down a couple that has will possibly, will probably proposition for a four-way. Basically, I've met this person a long time ago, and I have a new partner, and we're about to get married, and this person and her uh, partner are so much fun, and and I want to hang out with them, but... I have a feeling that from some of the stuff that's happened in the past where I was too naive to even think that way or anything like that. And she has mentioned that they have had dalliances with other couples or like with a third party or something. And uh, we had such a lovely time out with just her. She's in my, um, my work circle. And some of the stuff she was saying, I was like, I don't think that's an outright like invitation, but then she said, Oh, let's all get together. The four of us. And I was like, right. And then I thought, Oh, what is the best and politest way to turn down a proposition to have a four way? Because I just want to turn them down. We are not, we love being monogamous and it just makes us really nervous about any of that. Cause we're just vanilla. 
uh, maybe not with each other, but we are vanilla. There, I said it. So I, I just don't want to offend them. I want to hang out with them, and I I just want a way to turn them down. That's all. It's only polite to wait until someone hits on you before you turn them down. A preemptive, just in case you were thinking about fucking me, that's not going to happen. There's no polite way to roll that out. That's kind of presumptuous. You're making a giant leap. Well, perhaps not a giant leap. It is possible that your friend who is in an open relationship and with her partner, she swings, they swing. She may have been tossing out some of her experiences to get a sense for how you might feel about it to gauge your reaction because they are interested in you or hitting on you and your boyfriend. Or it could just be that she's one of those swinger blabbermouths, one of those open poly people who, who talk about it all the time and they're out there too. And all the people they talk to about it, they don't want to fuck all those people. So you're making perhaps not a giant leap. If you knew them to be swingers and they had never once mentioned their adventures to you, this would be a giant leap too. How do I tell them we're not, we don't want to fuck them when they haven't even told us that they're swingers officially and never hit on us. How do we, but they're going to hit on us because we are irresistible. How do we tell that would be a giant leap and you wouldn't need to say anything. Not as giant a leap from they're telling us about their sexual adventures and then they're asking if the four of us can hang out sometime. They might be preparing to pop the question. Not will you quad marry us, but would you guys want to mess around sometime? And then that's the polite time. That's the right time to turn them down. There is a way to head them off at the pass or head them off before the pass. She's mentioned to you that they are open, that they swing, that they have sex with other couples. Perfect time for you to mention that as you admire them. Wow, crazy sexual adventures. You're glad they have such a great sexual connection. I too have a great sexual connection with my partner. We have great sexual adventures. Ours are all monogamous. They're just with each other because we're both really monogamous types. And then you don't have to worry about them hitting on you. And then if they do hit on you, you shouldn't have to worry about them hitting on you. Maybe they would anyway. You can totally shut them down then. Don't you remember that conversation we had in the bar when you were telling me about the last 10 couples you guys had sex with, the last two couples you guys had sex with? When I mentioned that we're monogamous, I wasn't lying. We are monogamous, and we're going to stay that way. Hey, Dan, question for you. This happened a few weeks ago. I was out with my two young daughters at a store at a mall, and the store sells dolls, possibly American dolls. And while we were shopping using some Christmas gift cards, there was a man in there dressed like an actual baby doll. He was maybe in his 50s. He had a friend with him. He had a full beard, but was dressed in a white satin dress complete with tights and patent leather shoes, holding a purse, wearing a Shirley Temple wig, and huge bow in his fake hair. Um I really did not know how to explain this to my child, and I was very curious what your thoughts were about whether or not this was appropriate behavior. Half of me says, go on, let your freak flag fly, whatever you want to do, and half of me says, this is a children's space and not really a place that you belong. Can you let me know your thoughts? I really don't know how to think about it. I don't really know why I care either, but I do. Your question reminds me of this little controversy in San Francisco a few years ago where there were some puppies, human puppies, people who engage in pup play in the park. And sometimes pup play has totally sexual dimension. And sometimes people do pup play as foreplay or during sex. And some people like to be in pup space and they like to be puppies, even when they're not being sexualized or having sex in that particular moment. They're just romping around being puppies. But people looked at them and said, oh, there are those sex puppies, those gay guys who put on 
puppy dog masks and romp around because it turns them on and they're in the park. And some people got upset because wasn't that kind of public sex play and weren't they involving passersby in their sex play? And yeah, maybe, I guess. They weren't visibly aroused. They weren't fucking. They weren't naked. They weren't hard. They were just, how do you explain this to the kids? That was the question then too. What do you tell the children? They're just adults being goofy. Those just silly guys. They like to play. They're playing dress up. Kids understand playing dress up. Kids will understand after they hit puberty that some people play dress up as adults because it's sexy fun and not just fun fun. But at five, six, seven, eight, you tell a kid, ah, that's just an adult in a costume having some fun being goofy. And that's going to be enough for a kid because kids understand dressing up in costumes, pretending to be someone that you're not to be goofy. They understand play. We as adults, we look at that guy in the baby doll outfit in the toy store and we think, yeah, that's probably someone who enjoys that because it turns them on too. Doesn't mean it's sexualized in that moment in the story. He wasn't running through the store dressed as a baby doll, touching himself, masturbating, exposing himself. He wasn't visibly aroused. So all you had to tell your kids was, yeah, that's just an adult in a costume being silly. And that is enough for your kids. And trust me, mom. The chance encounter with the adult dressed up as a baby doll in a store, the chance seeing of a couple of gay dudes dressed up as puppies romping around in the park is nothing compared to all of the adult craziness your kids are going to see online. That is going to seem positively innocent in comparison to what your kids are going to witness when you give them their first phones. Hey, Dan. My name is James, coming at you from Mobile, Alabama. Uh, long-time listener, first-time caller. Hey, I wanted to talk about kind of uh, monogamy and relationships. And mainly, I've just had kind of a problem with that in the past. I've never cheated on anyone. But when I found myself in uh, sort of monogamous relationships, even with very attractive women, I always kind of basically just get bored. And I want to have sex with, with more people, more or less. And so... The ridiculous thing is when I find myself not in those relationships anymore, I'll end up hooking up with women who are much less attractive than the girls that I was with, and I'm not, I don't even like them. But there's apparently something appealing to me about either the newness or the conquest or whatever the hell it is. And uh, it just seems ridiculous that I'm leaving these relationships or I'm getting bored with these relationships and the grass sure as hell ain't greener on the other side and yet I keep doing it. So I guess the question would be how to maybe make monogamy more sustainable or attractive or get over wanting to do something else because that just doesn't seem to work. Here's what you know about yourself. Monogamy doesn't work for you. doesn't work for you. It's not the right choice for you. You're in a committed relationship and your eye wanders and then your thighs join your eyes wherever they've wandered off to and then you're fucking somebody else who isn't your partner and maybe less attractive than your partner. But it's obviously not just about attractiveness thresholds for you. It's about numbers and it's about variety. Now you know yourself. You've made monogamous commitments that you couldn't keep. You made monogamous commitments that you violated. 
there isn't a magic incantation that I can mutter on my show that's going to make you into someone for whom monogamy comes easily or naturally. Instead of making future commitments, future monogamous commitments that you are going to violate, make a non-monogamous commitment that you can uphold, that you can honor. Monogamy isn't working for you. And you know what? You don't work for monogamy either in the sense that you're not going to be able to be monogamous, most likely going forward. And the sense that monogamy ain't your boss. You can fire monogamy. We talk about monogamy as if humans fail at it. And the reality is that monogamy fails for many humans. Not the right choice for you. Know thyself, as so many smart people have said in other venues. Know thyself. And now you know yourself to be incapable of honoring or keeping a monogamous commitment. You are a dude, sexy sounding dude, I have to say who's going to want to sleep with a lot of different women over the course of his life. You can have that and a committed relationship too with someone who also is free to seek out new sex partners and new sexual experiences. Or you can have a commitment to someone where you're allowed to do what you want to do on the side and they are monogamous to you, not imposed, not a double standard. You have to find someone who that's the kind of relationship that they want. Those would be called cut queens. They are the female equivalent of cuckolds. They're a lot harder to find than a woman who is willing and wants to commit to a sexy dude and have a relationship, a stable, loving, intimate, long-term relationship with someone that isn't sexually exclusive on either part. That's what will work for you. That's what you should be working toward. Hi, Dan. A 23-year-old, bi-curious, gender-fluid, male-presenting. My fiancé and I have been open since about six or seven months into our relationship. We've been dating for about two years and we got engaged and hoping to get married soon. It's just we're traveling actors, so it's been tough to do that. But point is, we've been open for since about six, seven months into our relationship, and I've been the only one who's really acted on it. She hasn't really harbored any feelings of jealousy for that or anything, but she's basically just told me that she just feels really uncomfortable hooking up with people on Tinder or, you know, any of the dating apps or Bumble or anything. And she's just, you know, as a small woman, very nervous about wanting to hook up with people without knowing that. But one of the big things we agreed on and was one of her basic rules, too, was like, we're open, but we're not poly. We're interested in an monogamous romantic relationship, but just at the same time, being open to sexual experience since we are so young. She's 21 and I'm 23. I want her to be able to explore her sexuality because she's bi-curious as well. And I want her to be able to feel comfortable. I've offered any solutions like being in the same room, being in the apartment when she goes down or being down the road, like anything, so she can text me or something. And, and she just doesn't really take me up on anything. And I'm, I'm worried that she's just too shy and kind of timid to make this happen if I... I don't push her or try to help her or make her feel comfortable because that's often what we did. She's also Catholic and has a lot of guilt and a lot of things kind of feeling about just in general, finding her sexuality this at this point and, you know, our, the status of our relationship. But she claims that she's very happy in our relationship and she likes the idea of it being open at the opportunities it allows us. So I guess my big question is what can I do to make her feel more comfortable with, you know, hooking up with people because, the big thing was we didn't want to be poly. We want, we just wanted to hook up with people and have there be no dates and no anything like that. 
if I can sort of boil your call down and, and summarize it, what it sounds like you're saying is, how can I get my girlfriend to feel comfortable having sex in a way that makes her feel uncomfortable? Interesting. Because yeah. what you're saying is, like, I have hookups without any personal connection. I have hookups that are, uh, you know, with people I don't go on dates. I don't get to know them. They don't pre- they don't present an emotional risk or a romantic risks. They are potential future competitors for my affections because they're sort of walled off in this way. I don't have relationships with these people. I just have sex with them. That's how you do it, right? Yes. And it sounds like the rules you've laid down for her are she has to do it the exact same way you do it. Yeah, I think that's something we've talked about. And ironically, that's the way she said she was more comfortable with it. Whereas I was the one saying, like, I would be comfortable if you wanted to, you know, go on a date and get to know somebody as I would be comfortable doing similar things in that realm and she said no i would like it better this way but it seems like she is more conflicted about that oh okay so it's a little more complicated than my summation uh makes it sound like because it sounded like she was saying for me to feel comfortable having sex with somebody i have to know them and trust them i'm a petite person and i don't want to be the victim of sexual violence and that's a real concern you know a lot of guys in open relationships straight guys or guys in opposite sex open relationships i'm not saying you're a straight guy will say uh you know no you know, you can't know them. It has to be anonymous because it's guys can get anonymous sex without feeling threatened. But women have to factor in the very real risk for sexual violence at the hands of some strange man that they've never met, that they're just hooking up with yeah. on Tinder or whatever for sex. So women have to do more vetting of potential partners to protect themselves. So it's unfair when people who are in opposite sex and I, you know, recognizing your gender queer identity and its validity, but I'm just using this formulation here. The people who are in opposite sex relationships, the rules can't necessarily be identical. There's a flip side to this because it's often very easy for women in an open relationship to find guys who are willing to fuck her and harder for a guy in an open relationship to find women who are willing to fuck him. Cause yeah, cause Dick is easy to get and pussy because I think often factored into who's given out pussy has to be the risk for violence. And how do I protect myself? That has to come into play here. But, but, but it sounds like she may have imposed the no emotional component, no dating on you for fear of losing you. And then she's hewing to the same rules herself, which are preventing her from having sex with anyone else. Is that a more accurate read? That feels like exactly what it is. Yeah. All right. Well, we have to start all over. <laughs> we have to start this conversation all over again because you don't want to push your girlfriend to, to have sex that she doesn't want to have. If the only reason she, you know, if she really would like to have sex with somebody else, but the only reason she isn't or can't is because she doesn't want you to date or go on a date or hang out with someone or spend time with someone and, and potentially fall for them. So she's going to hew to those same limitations to prevent you from running off with somebody else, but then it prevents her from being intimate with anyone else because she doesn't feel comfortable. You can have two sets of rules that, that are shaped differently, that take into account your different realities and, and the realities of, of your bodies and how they're moving through the world and how they're treated by others. You know, sometimes when people want to make the rules for an open relationship, they're like, they got to be exactly the same for both people. Otherwise, it's not fair. And that's not the yeah. right standard. The right standard is... What works? What makes us both feel fulfilled and comfortable? And that sometimes yeah. that involves taking our own insecurities into account. Sometimes that involves taking our partner's insecurities into account. If one person doesn't care if their partner goes on a date, but the other partner doesn't isn't comfortable with that, 
they can have a different rules. They can have like, all right, you can go on a date and hang out with that person if that's what it takes to get in that person's pants. And I'm not going to tell you no, but I know that I'm not allowed to do that because that just sandpapers an irrational fear of yours that we both recognize as irrational, but it's there and we don't want a lot of drama. So I'm going to accommodate that. And my rules are going to be a little bit different. They're going to be tailored to, to make you feel emotionally and sexually safe as your rules are tailored to make me feel emotionally and sexually safe. Yes, that makes so much sense. So you guys need two different sets of rules. The rules for you, the rules for her. And the rules should make what you want to have happen for you possible while making her feel safe and secure in the relationship and vice versa. And they may not be identical. And that's okay. Okay. I think that's the problem we, we have so much is just because she so often uh, gets worried and worked up about like, you know, the fact that I've been more successful just in like cutting off the, the, the sort of like feeling part of it for me and just wanting to have sex. And, mm-hmm. and whereas she's very completely like, she's like, Oh, I feel like I should be having sex. There's this pressure that I should be doing something and, and I don't necessarily want to do it because I'm scared in this situation. And, and she shouldn't, she yeah. shouldn't, she shouldn't do exactly. anything that she doesn't want to do. She shouldn't have sex with people just to keep up with you. Yeah. It should be about what makes her content and comfortable. I know a lot of people, you know, I'm in an open relationship, marriage myself. I know a lot of people in open relationships. Some people, some couples, one person in that open relationship has a lot of sex with other people and the other person rarely, if ever, has sex with other people, but they're both happy. Are you content? That's the question for her. Are you content with, with how things are? You know, I've had three outside sexual experiences in the last year. You've had none. Are you happy? Are you, do you feel like you're missing out? Is there something that we should be doing differently that makes the sexual adventure possible for you? And it, you offered. You're like, I'll be there or I won't be there. I'll be in the other room. I'll be down the street. Whatever you need to make you feel comfortable, I'll, I'll help. But if what she's telling you is she has no interest right now, she shouldn't push herself into having sex that she doesn't want to have just because you're having sex that you do want to have. That doesn't benefit anyone. Yeah, Exactly. I, can, can, I know how you feel, though, because it can make somebody who's allowed to run off and have their adventures feel as if they're being unfair, feel self-conscious yeah. about what they get to do and what their partner isn't doing, as if there's some implicit guilt tripping going on that is just in your head. If she's not guilt tripping you about it, don't feel guilty. Yeah, she's admitted to me that like our libidos are a little out of whack, but we've been like very clear like, and by I mean out of whack, I feel like I just have like a really heightened libido. Like you do, hers, which is you do now. If you got you, you say you're 23 and you've known been together for a couple of years. If you guys marry and please have a nice long engagement, but if you guys marry and you're together 20 years, 25 years, there may come a time, you know, when she's in her 30s where her libido is roaring and yours is a little more yeah. settled down. So the off leash time you got in your early 20s, she may demand that same kind of off-leash time from you in her 30s if you guys go the distance. Yeah, that makes sense. There's an ebb and flow in a relationship. And in an open relationship, the ebb and flow can be can move in and out independently. The tide can move in and out independently for both partners. And that's okay. And the other thing is I think we have we struggle just like obviously I've listened to your show a lot and I, I really appreciate the way you talk about like, you know, uh you're never going to be enough and accept that. And that's like a beautiful thing because you give somebody, you know, the, the enough by like saying, I'm okay with this. I'm comfortable with our relationship because I know I'm not everything that you 
need and you're not everything I need. And I think we still struggle with that early on in our relationship now because it's just such a ingrained like societal thing of like monogamy and this bullshit that's like you've got to be enough for the one person and all this shit. And she was from like a Catholic upbringing and like went to a bunch of Catholic schools. And like, mm. I just, uh, I came from a really different background, but at the same time, like I always had that same feeling of like, Oh, there's just one person. And it's just like, now that we've opened ourselves to this and feel like it's right for us, it's just hard to still get those insecurities out. You're, it sounds like you're closer now to being enough for each other because you've recognized that you can't be all things to each other. Because being with yeah. you means that she can get what she needs elsewhere if and when she needs to get it, which brings you closer to being everything that she needs, paradoxically. You're with somebody who isn't trying to be everything but isn't preventing you from reaching out when you need to to get – and I'm not just talking about sex here. You know, A lot of people have it in their heads that if they're married, a long-term relationship, that person's supposed to be your best friend and your confidant and the person you tell everything – and you confide in, and sometimes you need to confide in someone else. Sometimes you need uh, emotional support or input or just camaraderie and company from somebody who's not your partner, not your spouse. And if you have a spouse who isn't threatened by that, whether it's an emotional connection, a friendship, a best friendship with somebody else, or a sexual friendship or connection or need that you get met elsewhere, if they're not threatened by that, yeah, I've all, I often say you, you aren't enough. You aren't enough. But you know what? You're closer to being everything that person needs by not pretending you are paradoxically everything that person needs. You can't provide everything that person needs to them, but if you are preventing them from getting the needs that you can't meet met elsewhere, ah, my, my head's exploding. Then you might be enough with all of that additional support and input from outside. Yeah. That makes so much sense. <laughs> Did it to you? Because I kind of confused myself. I kind of got lost myself. I'm glad it made sense to you. Maybe it made sense to others. Good luck and congratulations in advance on your wedding, which I hope will take place two presidential administrations from now. Yeah, yeah. Nice long engagements. When you get engaged in your early 20s, a nice long engagement is best. Yeah, we're waiting a couple of years. Yeah, thank you. Five years. Five years, okay. Five years, not a couple, five. Promise me five. Okay. I will, if you guys get married when you are 28, I will come to your wedding. Okay, I'll hold you to that. Okay, good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm 29 years old. My mom's boyfriend, like I get kind of this weird vibe from him, and he does weird things like he'll just PayPal me money randomly. And, um, you know, I'm not struggling or anything. You know, at first I was like, well, okay, maybe he's just nice, and he's trying to get on my mom's good side. But then, like, he'll just, like, start texting me out of nowhere, and he said that he's getting a, um, like, he's renting out this house for the summer, and him and his kids come visit sometimes, you know, and it's in Florida where I live. And he says, well, maybe, you know, you could come over and, you know, come for a swim if you want to. And I don't know. It just seems weird to invite me over for a swim without my mom. Just weird stuff like that all the time. I feel like he tries to get me by myself. Sometimes, and I really hate to misunderstand what this is, but it just feels weird. I feel like he buys things and sends me money all the time, hoping that I'll accept one of these invitations. And I'm just not sure how to handle it or if maybe I'm reading it all wrong and he's just a nice guy and I'm being paranoid. I'm not sure what to do and it's making me feel really awkward. Trust your gut. In this instance, we should trust our guts generally, but we do sometimes need to interrogate our guts. The problem here is 
he's doing ostensibly nice things that have this overtone that if you called him on like, hey, dude, you're hitting on me, he would have plausible deniability. I was just being nice to my girlfriend's daughter. I was treating you like what I treat my own kids who I lavish with presents and invite to the house with the pool to go for a swim. There's this creepy thread running through it of this reach for intimacy in your relationship that's inappropriate to your relationship. You are the adult child of his girlfriend. He shouldn't be treating you like one of his kids because you're not one of his kids. You're not a child. And to treat an adult like this, yeah, you can plausibly deny that you were hitting on someone if you were doing this, even if that was your intent. You were ingratiating yourself. You're trying to create a, a bond of intimacy, independent and separate from the bank shot bond that he should have with you and the respect he should have with you and the relationship he should have with you. Bank shot through your mother. He's establishing this independent relationship with you. And that could be innocent and dense on his part. He could just have low emotional IQ and be clueless and he would be appalled and it could be really problematic and create a lot of drama if you called him out on it explicitly. Or he could be trying to weasel his way into your pants and trust your gut. My money is on the latter. And maybe not weasel his way into your pants in the end, but wants to see you in a wet swimsuit without your mom around. Even if he doesn't make the pass, maybe he's just going to enjoy the view and have a wank about it. Yeah, it all makes me uncomfortable too. And I'm not the woman being invited over to the house or accepting the presence. Establish boundaries with this guy. Clear boundaries. Don't respond to his texts that you don't want to respond to. Don't respond to the texts that seem overly familiar or out of the blue or inappropriately pointless, deflect the invitations and say to him when he buys you these gifts, hey, I'm not comfortable accepting these presents. I'm not comfortable accepting cash handouts from my mother's boyfriend. I'm not hurting. I don't need the money. Send that money to your own kids or donate it to a charity. And if you really feel like spending that much money on me, save it up for Christmas, save it up for a birthday, get me something with my mom. That will feel appropriate. But this just makes me feel uncomfortable. And to say this makes me feel uncomfortable isn't to say that he intended to make you feel uncomfortable. And if he leaps to, hey, you're accusing me, say, I'm not accusing you. And if he leaps to, hey, you're accusing me, that's a good sign that he was intending to make you uncomfortable or intending to ingratiate himself to you in a way that was inappropriate and perhaps get into your pants. But if you say this is making me uncomfortable and he says, ah, oh, it wasn't my intent, you just say, I didn't say that that was your intent. But that's how I'm receiving it. That's how it feels. It makes me feel uncomfortable. Whatever your motivations are, whatever your intentions are, I am telling you, makes me feel uncomfortable. So knock it the fuck off is implied strongly. And he should knock it the fuck off. And if he doesn't knock it the fuck off, you're going to need to have a very uncomfortable conversation with your mother about her boyfriend. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay man. I live in New York City. I'm in my mid-30s. I have a question for you about someone I met recently. I met this beautiful man. We have this incredible, beautiful connection, perhaps one of the most intimate, giving, loving, and rewarding connections I've had in a very long time. We've been hanging out for a couple of months. It's really great. And I can say he is definitely without doubt treats me in a way I don't think I've really ever been treated by someone. When we first met, he was staying with friends and he told me the reason he was staying with friends is because he was Airbnb his house. But over time, I've come to realize that he is actually homeless um, and lost his apartment due to finances. 
and he's staying around the city with different people. I've also learned that he has a substance use thing going on with crystal meth that he's open and honest with me about, but I think he does it more than he wants to and does it more than he admits to me. It's getting difficult for me because I'm developing feelings for him and I don't know the stability or how much I should care about this person. But I also know that our connection is so true and genuine and he cares about me so much. I don't want to dismiss him and look over this possibility for this situation that's possibly temporary. But what I do know is that he isn't necessarily telling me the truth about where he stays and who he's with. And there's a couple of times I've caught him in a lie. I need to know and I need advice in regards to how to approach the situation compassionately and respectfully and how to possibly continue this connection with someone that's so beautiful and amazing, but yet his life just doesn't is in such chaos and involves perhaps he doesn't have the ability to be in the relationship he wants to have with me. Someone who's using math and regularly lying to the person that he's dating is not in good working order. Someone who's using math, even if they tell the truth and nothing but the truth is not in good working order. I don't think people have to be perfect. None of us are perfect, but we owe it to the people that we date when we begin to date them or present ourselves to the world as dateable to be in good working order. And your friend, this guy that you've been seeing just isn't, you should end the romantic relationship. You should tell him that you can't continue to see him or fuck him or date him. You should also offer to help him. If he needs help finding whatever resources are available in your community to get him off fucking crystal meth. You don't want to get mixed up with an addict who right now in the honeymoon stage and infatuation stage of your relationship is definitely going to be on his best behavior, particularly if he needs a place to stay or a place to live and then allow him to move in with you or mix your lives up together to such a point that extracting yourself from the relationship is going to be impossible. So end it. But don't cut him off from contact unless things get really toxic. Don't cut him off from contact. Sometimes people need to be cut off from contact because that's part of hitting rock bottom. It's part of what opens people's eyes to the problem they have and the severity of it. And sometimes cutting people off is the inspiration, the impetus that they needed to go get the fucking help that the drugs have convinced them that they don't need yet. But right now it doesn't sound like you need to cut this guy off. You do need to say, until you're off crystal, until I can trust the things that come out of your mouth, and right now I can't, because I've caught you in several lies, I can't date you. So there can't be a romantic connection here. But how can I help you? Maybe just listening is a way that I can help. Maybe there are resources out there in the community. Maybe you've met some of his other friends, and it's intervention time. You can do a little legwork on his behalf. If he's homeless, if he's addicted to drugs, if he's in a really bad way, he might not be capable of doing the simple Google search and making the handful of phone calls that could unlock resources and help for him that he needs. You could do that and you could lay that before him. 
and then see what he does. If you lay that help before him and he does nothing, he continues on doing what he's doing now. What he's telling you is he prefers meth to you because you're giving him a choice. Get the help you need and then maybe we can keep seeing each other down the road. Doesn't get the help he needs. That means he doesn't give a shit whether he ever sees you again. He's picking drugs over you at that moment. And I'm sorry, somebody who picks meth over a decent, loving, compassionate, kind-sounding person like you is no one that a decent, compassionate, kind, loving-sounding person like you should be wasting your time on. It's sad. The addict, the liar, is bundled up with his good qualities. People aren't all evil or all bad. And sometimes we invest so much hope in the good we can see in a person that we put up with shit that we shouldn't put up with and are putting up with it enables to grab that word off the shelf enables them to keep doing the shitty things that they're doing. And they give us just enough good so that we continue to take care of them or help them out or be there for them. And it doesn't help them. It just enables them to continue down the very destructive path that they're on. That's when you have to really zoom out and assess what you're doing and make a judgment call about whether exiting this person's life is really the kindest and most loving thing you can do for this person. Again, I don't think you're at that stage yet, but you might be soon. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls because every once in a while we like to invite researchers or scientists onto the show to share with us the results of a new scientific study that they've published for a little segment we call What You Got. Joining me by phone for this what you got, Justin Lay Miller, director of the social psychology graduate program and an assistant professor of social psychology at Ball State University. He's also a faculty affiliate of the Kinsey Institute in Indiana University and runs the popular blog Sex and Psychology. Hey, Justin, how are you? Great. Thanks for having me on, Dan. Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for coming on. So, uh, what do you got? So um, I conducted this study on gay men's cuckolding fantasies. And cuckolding, if you're not familiar, uh, is a sexual practice where people enjoy watching their partners have sex with other people. And we've known that cuckolding has been around for a long time. There's a lot of pornography in this era um, or in this area. And um, yeah, this uh, era. we went in <laughs> this era. It, it does seem to be growing in popularity. Um, but we wanted to do a study kind of looking at what are the characteristics of gay men's cuckolding fantasies and what are their experiences like acting them out. And, and how are they different uh, from straight men's cuckolding fantasies? I, I know, and I've written about this a lot in Savage Love, I, the cuckolding questions I got for the first 20 years were only from straight men. And cuckolding as opposed to swinging or hot wifing or hot spousing it t involves an element of degradation or humiliation or you know the partner who's being quote-unquote cheated on and it's ethical and it's consensual non-monogamy but cheated on uh, is inadequate in some way and their partner is enjoying sex with this other person more. This, this whole element to cuckolding as opposed to swinging or hot wifing about degradation. Um, and for the first 20 years of Savage Love, all my questions about cuckolding were from straight guys. So much so that I once wrote that cuckolding wasn't something that gay men fantasized about. And then five to ten years ago, the first couple of questions come in from gay cuckolds and then a lot of them. And suddenly there's a lot of gay cuckolding tumblers and porn out there. And so your study looked at that, at gay cuckolding. And what did you find? Right. So um, 
we wanted to look at kind of how gay men's cuckolding fantasies might be similar to or different from straight men's cuckolding fantasies. And uh, one of the things we found was that there wasn't a lot of emphasis on BDSM in the the, the gay men's uh, fantasies. There wasn't that that same strong theme of humiliation and, and degradation. Um, also, in straight men's cuckolding fantasies, there are a lot of interracial themes where it's usually a white guy who's sharing his white wife or girlfriend with um, a black man. Um, the interracial element was almost non-existent in the gay men's cuckolding fantasies that we looked at. Um, there also mm. wasn't as much of an emphasis on the uh, big penis theme in gay men's fantasies, which is interesting because it's a very prominent part of heterosexual men's cuckolding fantasies is that they're watching their partner have sex with someone who's very well endowed. Um, that wasn't quite as prominent in the uh, gay men's fantasies uh, that we observed too. So, so some interesting differences there. What do you think accounts for the difference or did the study not get into that? Yeah, we didn't fully get into what might explain the differences, but I think part of what's going on here is just that when heterosexual men are having these cuckolding fantasies, they're kind of wrapping a whole bunch of different taboos up into one. So when it's a, a straight man who's in a monogamous marriage, um, fantasizing about your partner having sex with someone of a different race with a large penis and, you know, breaking those vows of, of marriage and monogamy. Um, it's also a lot violating of taboos. taboos around uh, race and, and, you know, racial anxieties that can be eroticized and often are. Right, right. So there's all of that. But when, when you're looking at gay men, that, that um, gay men are much more likely to date interracially and um, they're less likely to subscribe to norms of monogamy. So maybe those taboos are less novel elements of gay men's fantasies just because they're, you know, less taboo. I have a theory that I pulled out of my ass a few minutes ago. Actually, I pulled out of my ass five years ago, uh, and I want to bounce it off you. Um, I didn't really hear from gay cuckolds until the marriage equality movement really took off, until mm -hmm. gay men were getting legally married in a couple of provinces in Canada and then a handful of states in the United States, and then you know, the Supreme Court ruling comes down and gay male couples can get married everywhere. And then suddenly I start hearing from people who this is their fantasy, their spouse – their husband having sex with someone else, uh, either in front of them or behind their backs and telling them about it later. And I looked at that and said, oh, you know, I had attributed the cuckold fantasy uh, to straight guys to the paternal uh, insecurity. Is that kid mine? Mm -hmm. um, and sort of eroticizing and fetishizing that because so much of straight land, so much of straight sexual culture over the fucking millennia has been <laughs> – trying to reassure insecure guys that these women were having their babies. And the only way to really reassure them was to kind of enslave and segregate and set off the women and prevent them from interacting with other men. And then that, that becomes eroticized and guys want to see their wives actually do that thing that they're not supposed to do. And I just looked at it like suddenly, Oh, marriage equality is here. And suddenly gay guys are into this now too. So obviously the taboo that gay men are violating is this cultural norm around marriage being monogamous, even though most gay couples wrote their own rules about monogamy and were much less likely to be monogamous, once we could get married, then, ooh, we have this exciting new taboo. We have this exciting new thing to transgress against. Mm -hmm. And am I wrong? Did your study look into that at all? Uh, we didn't really look at that as, as a focus of the study. I think intuitively what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense, um, but we just don't really have the data to be able to test that. You know, it'd be great if we could look and see if, um, you know, what interest in cuckolding was 10 years ago versus today, but those data just don't exist. So um, 
you know, intuitively it makes sense. Uh, we just don't have the data to be able to say whether that's for sure what's going on there. So when the study was rolled out, uh, and this isn't about the study, but the controversy, there was a real reaction from the right when this coupling yeah. study came out, this furious reaction. The study got written up at CNN, and then what happened? <laughs> so CNN ran a headline that said, cuckolding may be good for some couples, study finds. And um, it exploded immediately on Twitter. Uh, there were all these tweets saying that our study in CNN's coverage was, quote, destroying Western civilization. Um, and then it turned into this whole thing where suddenly all of these uh, conservative and alt-right websites like like Breitbart and Daily Caller were uh, talking about our, quote, perverse study and, uh, again, how it was um, uh, destroying America. I think I read that in uh, one of the articles. So, uh, yeah, it turned into this really big thing, and I did not see this coming. So that was an interesting experience. It might have had something to do with uh, one of the co-authors uh, yeah, there was appearing this... <laughs> on the study. There's this guy on the paper who is a, a sex advice columnist for a long time who uh, <laughs> may have written a thing or two about cuckolding before. So, <laughs> I was, I, I'm credited on this study as a co-author, and I actually didn't do much work or writing at all. You're the you're the lead author. Um, I helped find some guys who were into cuckolding through my column and through my podcast to participate in the study and and read it and and shared my thoughts with you during the the writing process. But you're the lead author, but. You know, Breitbart thinks that I wrote it and went after me. And, and this is funny. Usually I don't know what you got. I don't know what the study is about, much less am I accredited co-author on the study. But in this case, I was accredited co-author, which was nice. I didn't think I deserved it. It was nice of you to, to give me that credit. But uh, it seemed to be, you know, but I knew my name on there was waving a red flag in front of the assholes at Breitbart uh, and Fox <laughs> News. Hey, who went that's okay. bananas about it. Um, and I'm sorry that, you know, the, the study was talked about on right-wing websites as if I authored it alone. And I just kept saying, hey, what about Justin? Why are you go, – go after Justin. Leave me alone. <laughs> Justin wrote it. But I didn't say that publicly because I didn't want to make it worse for you than it probably already was. <laughs> hey, it's okay. The news cycle has died down, so, it, so it's all good again. But congrats and America on survived. publication. I know. Oh, so. Thank you. Thank you. My first academic publication. But America survived. Somehow America survived the cuckolding crisis of 2018. Well, we, we survived for now. I mean, I'm sure there's another sex crisis looming. Uh, they're just waiting for the next study to come out. So what's the name of the study and where can interested listeners find the study and read it for themselves? So the study is entitled The Psychology of Gay Men's Cockholding Fantasies, and it was published in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. You can find a link to it on my Twitter feed, at, at Justin Langmiller. It's on there somewhere. It's also on um, our other co-author, David Lay, uh, has tweeted uh, the link to it as well so that you can read it freely online. I also want to recommend following Justin on Twitter. Uh, I follow you and there's not a week that goes by or sometimes a day that goes by where just looking at your Twitter feed, I don't learn something about sex I didn't know after 26 <laughs> years of writing about this shit. So thank you very much and thank you for letting me play in academia with you. Yeah, no, it was a great time. And um, can I also mention that I have a book coming out this summer that I'm really a excited absolutely. about? Absolutely. Please. <laughs> so it is called Tell Me What You Want and it's all about the science of sexual fantasies and what we want, what it says about us and how we can go about getting what we want. So uh, I'm super excited about it. I hope you'll come back on the show this summer when the book comes out, because that's definitely sounds like something I'm, my listeners would like to hear more about. I would be happy to do that. Justin Miller, director of the social psychology graduate program and an assistant professor of social psychology at Ball State 
University and a faculty affiliate of the Kinsey Institute and lead author of this new study on gay cuckolding. Uh, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. That was a really great convo. Thanks. Yeah, thanks so much, Dan. Hey, Dan. I'm a 24-year-old guy, gay-ish. I've been seeing a great guy for about seven weeks now. I'm not trying to plan the future or anything, but it's going well, and I'd like to keep doing it. We have a lot in common. We have great chemistry, and the sex is that passionate, tearing each other's clothes off kind of thing. I'm trans, so I don't really have a dick, and it's his first time interacting with the junk I do have, and he's super chill about it, enthusiastic. It's just all going really good. But here's the catch. We're 20 years apart. He's 44. I'm really only attracted to guys a lot older than me. I've tried to change that over the years, but I don't think that truth is going anywhere. This is not the first time I've connected with a guy 20 years older than me. It's actually been a recurrent theme in my life. But it is the first time it's been a situation where we're both single and might actually want to maybe be a couple or something. At least I get the sense that's where he's at too. I've had fuck buddies who are much older, but there have often been guys that are in open relationships and they have husbands or partners that are cool with them fucking a young guy on the side. It's not been a dating thing. I've pretty much stolen myself to being single for a long time because of my attraction. Sure, lots of guys want to fuck a 24-year-old, but why would someone in their 40s want to date a 24-year-old? He's not some hapless loser at all. He's got a job he loves, and it sounds like a great group of friends. He's ridiculously cultured and interesting. He quotes NPR a lot. He's fucking cute as hell. There was recently a death in my family, and he was so there for me and supportive about it. I keep trying to figure out what's wrong with this guy based on the fact he's interested in guys so much younger than him. I brought up, brought up the age gap thing as sort of a joke once, and he admitted it's not his usual thing. He's had what sounds like a healthy, normal dating life with age-appropriate ex-boyfriends. So what gives? How can I feel better about a potential relationship with a 20-year gap? Is there required reading on the subject? Positive media representation? Is there a conversation he and I need to have and have answers to? And if so, what are those questions even? And how can I make other people more okay with this? My mom likes to carry on about middle-aged gay men who fuck 20-something gay men and how horrible it is. She found out about another guy in my life who was a sexual relationship and a lot older than me, and she was not okay with it. It caused a pretty big riff. I care a lot about what she thinks. I'm unfortunately temporarily living at home. Um, I do have what sounds like a pretty good job lined up soon. So hopefully um, I will be out of here, but I care a lot about what my family thinks. I don't want to be one of those young gay men in one of those scary gay relationships with a much older man. How do I sugarcoat that? How do I reframe this in other people's heads or my head and stop feeling so guilty about it? Or do I just need to put my love life on hold for 20 years and wait until I'm 40 and age into my type? Uh, any words of guidance would be great. I'm just pretty lost. You ignored what the world and presumably your mother told you about your gender identity and you transitioned and you ignored what the world and presumably your mother too told you about your sexual orientation and you came out as gay as well. I don't know why suddenly with age difference, you're so invested in the opinion of the world or your mother's opinion You've gone your own way where gender and sexual orientation are concerned. You can go your own way where your sounds pretty awesome intergenerational relationship is concerned. There are so many examples out there in the world of decent, loving, solid relationships, queer and otherwise, where there is a 10-year, 15, 20-year age gap, sometimes 30-year age gap. Google Chris and Don – Armistead Maupin is married to a man who's 20-ish years younger than he is, and they seem to have a great and loving relationship. Sarah Paulson's 
girlfriend is 30 years older than she is, I believe. Ellen DeGeneres is 15-ish years older than uh, Portia DeRossi. Stop. Stop worrying about this. Let it play out for as long as it's going to play out. Now, we don't want to be naive about relationships with large age gaps. There are definitely situations, we've all seen them in our lives or the lives of our friends, where someone who's older and more experienced is taking advantage of someone's youth and naivete. That is a thing that happens. That doesn't mean there should never be a relationship with a large age gap. There are people who take advantage of someone's naivete when they were born on the same fucking day. That can happen too. I do think the bar has to be higher, that there needs to be some scrutiny. It is okay for your mother to regard this man with some suspicion because she worries legitimately that he may be taking advantage of your youth and inexperience, particularly if you're just out, maybe taking advantage of your naivete, allowing your mother to grill him, answering your mother's questions about the relationship to set her at ease. Your mother's questions, if she has questions about the relationship, they may open your eyes to a problem in the relationship that you were too love blind to see right now. So I do think that scrutiny is okay. I do think questions and skepticism is okay. But if what you come up with at the end of that period of scrutiny or skepticism, because the bar should be set a little bit higher because this is a situation where you could be taken advantage of, is that you're not being taken advantage of and that it's good and decent and loving, then you just stick around. You stay in the relationship. You tell mom to chill the fuck out. You convince mom that he's a good and decent guy. Mom can come around if you answer her questions. If she doesn't come around, then it's just prejudice. It also doesn't have to last forever for it to have been a good relationship for you. We get so attached to the notion of the LTR as the only marker of success and the open-ended LTR, the relationship that nobody gets out of until somebody's dead. And that's a successful relationship. We have to beat it into our heads that STRs are a thing too, that you can have a successful short-term relationship. Even if this relationship should end, even if it ends because of the age difference, Maybe you guys can't bridge that gap. Maybe the age difference throws up some flack that is fatal to the relationship. Or if it ends for some other reason, if you both really connected, really enjoyed each other and stick that dismount in all senses of that phrase, if you stick the dismount and you emerge from this relationship as friends, as two people had a real intimate romantic connection for a time and are still in each other's lives, then it was a successful short-term relationship. It's already a successful short-term relationship. It could become a successful longish-term relationship. It could become the relationship that you are in for the rest of your life if you let it. And you should let it. You should let this unfold. And don't pay any attention to how your mother feels about it. Your mother doesn't have to date this guy or date somebody 20, 30, 40 years older than she is. This is your life. This is your choice. Just like you transitioned. Trans identity isn't a choice, but you made the choice to transition, just like sexual orientation isn't a choice. We make the choice, however, to come the fuck out. This is who you choose. You choose to be with this man for now. You wouldn't be who you are if you worried and attached tremendous importance to what mommy thinks. Couldn't be the man that you are, the gay man that you are. So on this score as well, on the age difference, stop worrying about what mommy thinks. Hi, Dan. I'm a 28-year-old straight cis female living in a big city on the West Coast. My dilemma is that I have alopecia, an autoimmune disease, and about three years ago, I lost all my hair uh, everywhere. I don't have hair, one hair on my body. So I have my eyebrows cosmetically tattooed, and I have no eyelashes at all. I do wear a wig 95% of the time in public. 
and don't wear one at home another 95% of the time. A wig is kind of like a bra and it's nice to take off at the end of the day. Um, I had beautiful long blonde hair before losing it and now I usually wear a blonde wig and sometimes mix it up with other colors. I feel much more secure with the wig on, but after dealing with this for a few years, I realized being bald isn't the worst thing in the world and my identity isn't wrapped up in my hair. The problem comes to dating. When do I tell someone? Do I put a bald pic on my uh, online profiles? Some friends say yes to weed out the guys who are shallow and care, but then I miss out on getting to meet the guy and maybe and think maybe you know once they know me, they won't care if I'm bald. That hasn't worked out really the best either. Uh, you know, the problem is I believe I have faced guys ghosting me once they found out I was bald, even after we slept together. Um, I don't know. I don't want to be alone forever due to such a stupid aesthetic condition. Any advice um, on how to approach this would be great. Listening to your call, it reminded me of, and I'm, I'm not comparing your alopecia to any amputation, but it reminded me of a conversation I had many years ago with a woman who was an amputee who for a long time didn't date guys who were attracted to her because she was an amputee. And then finally she realized that she'd rather be with someone who loved her for who she was rather than someone who loved her despite who she was, despite the amputation. She found it better in the end to be with somebody who was attracted to the fact that she was, I believe, missing an arm rather than someone who was willing to overlook that or get past it. And I'm just curious how you would feel about that. If, Cause there are definitely guys out there who are, who fetishize bald women. That's interesting. Um, I haven't met one of them yet. Well, you, ha- you haven't put a picture of yourself on a dating app bald yet. As soon as you do, you'll hear from them. No, I did, Dan. I put it and I put a little blur on my profile. After, this is just recently after like all my normal stuff and said, and by the way, you know, you know, I had alopecia. I lost my hair a few years ago. Most people don't know, but in case you're not, some people don't appreciate the bald look, like whatever. Mm-hmm. But my dream is to go out with a date, go on a date with someone and tell them, you know, like, it's not a big deal, but I'm wearing a wig. And my dream is for them to be like, well, I'm not on a date with your hair. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's how, that sounds like, you know, my heart goes out to you. That sounds like, you know, you want to be with somebody who, you know, wants to be with who you are, wants to be with the person inside. And right, we all want that person, but we are also our exteriors. We are our physical bodies and, and our physical presence. And I'm, I, I would guess, I, I would expect that there are things about the men that you're attracted to that aren't just about the person they are on the inside, that there are certain Right. Physical traits and features that the absence of which you would have a problem with. That's true. And might be hard for you to overcome. Mm -hmm. That would be true. Doesn't mean you couldn't overcome it, but it might, Mm -hmm. you know, give you pause at first. Or even if, you know, you had a negative reaction, cause you to ghost on someone for a, a physical trait that they have no control over. Yeah, I think it would be really hard for me to date someone in a wheelchair mm-hmm. or something like that. What about a guy who didn't have a penis? Yeah, I think that would be really hard. 
Yeah, that, that's a that's a deal breaker for a lot of people, right? Who are attracted to men. Yeah, it's like yeah, that's probably wouldn't work for me. Yeah, Evan Urquhart, who's a trans writer at Slate, talks about how we should refer to uh, phallophiles and I think gynophiles or vagophiles. That for some of us, you know, we're phallophiles. It's not just we're attracted to men; we're also, you know, mm-hmm. attracted to dick. Uh, right. And that's not necessarily something that is a problem so long as we're respectful and kind to people who, you know, don't right meet our you know baseline criteria and that we scrutinize our baseline criteria. Right. Sometimes, you know, we're attracted to what we think we've been told we must be attracted to. And if we think about it for a little bit or experience someone else, uh, we're, we discover we're attracted to more. And that's the other strategy you've been employing. We let them get to know you, then tell them. Because sometimes people have prejudices and they make assumptions that they couldn't be attracted to someone uh, or wouldn't want to be with that's someone. That's answering my question of saying, so the whole, the whole dilemma is whether to come, come to it, be straightforward about it or have it known before. Or like what my mom says is, you know, like hide it as long as you can, mm-hmm. make them like you first and then share with them. But even then that happened to me and I slept with him and he ghosted me. Right. And do you know for a fact he ghosted you because of the alopecia? No, I don't know that for a fact. But it is the big obvious thing looming. It's in the room, the elephant in the room, and, and you're going to attach it to that. But it could have been something else, but it could have been that and probably is likely to be that. It just, you know, it depends on, you know, which cup of shit you want to drink really like let someone get to know you then tell them risk uh rejection but rejection is always built in to a new relationship or uh tell them in advance and be rejected in advance by maybe a guy or two if he really got to know you would overcome his assumptions about the kind of women he's attracted to that's true it's a conundrum and 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 i think you can move right both (laughs) You can move on both fronts, however. You know, you're going to meet people as you move through the world in meat space, in real life, where you're wearing your wig, mm-hmm. who won't, you know, may ask right. you out, not knowing that you have alopecia. And then you can, with those guys, run the tell them later, let them get to know me first program. You can also right. put up a website. You can also be on some dating apps being straightforward about the fact that you're bald, you know, that you're, you, you have a hairless, mm-hmm. not just head but hairless body there's some guys out there who really like hairlessness most places on a woman's body <laughs> i know and it's ironic that you know i have friends getting brazilian waxes and i was like no i was not into that at all i was like very like what that's natural and healthy you know <laughs> and of course i'm the one that now looks like a child <laughs> <laughs> not a child i'm sure a grown woman's vulva is a little different than, than a child's vulva the hairlessness may be the same a child is hairless and a grown woman uh-huh. typically isn't but i push back when people say you know removing the hair you look like a child like no 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 i've you know been with guys who shave yeah. their pubic hairs off and those aren't and i've also parented uh, a male child and that is not a baby penis i can tell the difference okay. hair or no hair and i okay. assume the same goes for vulva you <laughs> know no this is i'm glad that my on my call it came through that this is the big conundrum like what do you do? And I was hoping you'd have a very easy, like, I know, like as simple as dump the motherfucker already. You would be a simple and easy answer. <laughs> I thought of all people, you would know the, the answer. I don't think, I, I guess I come down on, you don't have to choose. You're going to meet people when you have your wig on mm-hmm. who aren't going to know. And some of them are mm-hmm. going to ask you out and then you can date them. You're going to, I think you should put it out there that, you know, on some dating apps. I think also you might want to go out sometimes without the wig. 
I do. You know, the only thing I've done it and you have to wear a lot of makeup or you look sickly. I've been asked if I was in treatment, I, you know, when I go out, throw on a baseball cap and don't wear makeup, that mm-hmm. people think you're very ill. And, and then they tell you about their illness and you have to be like, oh, God, I'm so sorry. But, you know, I can't relate. Yeah. Um, it's not an irrational uh, association. No, no, I don't. And they're being kind and trying to relate on, other, you know, mm-hmm. but I just I haven't been through treatment, which is so much more horrible than what I was you know, facing. But I think that um, the thing is, it's actually um, really your, your head gets really cold. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the most practical thing. <laughs> Um, so sometimes like when I want to be that, do that look, but you know, I live in Los Angeles and it gets chilly at night. Uh-huh. <laughs> I know you feel, I feel kind of naked when I, when I don't have it on. But. Yeah, I, I, I think if I were in your shoes, I would, I would wear the wig too. And you sound like you're in such a great place about this. And I want to really credit you for that because I, this has to have been extremely dramatic. Thank you. Thank you for recognizing that. It really, really was. And I still sometimes get sad looking at my old, thick blonde beautiful hair mm-hmm. but it's just funny because i have a lot of neuroses but if i stay single the rest of my life because of the hair and not my neuroses <laughs> <laughs> but you actually like you myself. you'll never know which it was you know that some people are alone all their lives <laughs> who have long hair beautiful thick fucking hair <laughs> so that's not the key that unlocks the you know romantic uh, relationship success box it's uh, true that's True. The bald head will keep guys away that aren't the right guys for you because you are a bald woman. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And ironically, the guy who ghosted me after we slept together and I had told him that day was also bald. <laughs> so I told him, I go, I'm just like you. And he looked at me really serious. And he was like, the struggle is real. And <laughs> and was like really mad, I think. But not, not enough. He still took me home. So I, I don't know. Oh. Guys are so weird. Okay, well, that was one guy. One guy ghosted on you or yeah. multiple guys ghosted on you? Um, One told me we were kissing, and I told him, and he said, and he's just an asshole, I think. He said, I prefer you keep it on, which mm-hmm. is like not what you want to hear. Okay, so so magic sorting hat, your baldness removed that asshole from your life. Congratulations. Good for that's your baldness. True. Score one yeah, for baldness. That's true. And you're going to keep going out there and moving through the world bald, hairless everywhere, which some people appreciate hairlessness down there. And you're going to find a guy that Mm -hmm. either it doesn't matter or it matters very much. Mm -hmm. And the guy to whom it matters very much, it might matter so much, but he's willing to overlook it and get past it because the rest of what you bring to the table is so great. Or it matters very much because he is insanely attracted to bald women. And those guys, Mm -hmm. one thing you have to be careful with, and we'll have to end here because we're running out of time. You have to be careful about those guys. Some guys may fetishize your baldness. And it's not mm-hmm. okay. necessarily a deal breaker to be with somebody who fetishizes some aspect of your physical existence, presence, person, so long as they also see you for the three-dimensional human being you are, so long as you are not just an object. We are all of us, in a sense, objects as well as everything else. Yeah. So to be with someone who appreciates you as an right. object, people don't have a problem with that, to be appreciated as an object, so long as somebody is conventionally attractive and the person is tapping into culturally approved of physical traits and because of the cultural approval we don't even notice that this is fetishization or objectification huh that's interesting so it's something i'm going to be aware of and be cautious of right for sure it's okay to date like my long interview with this woman who was a was a an amputee who was in a relationship with someone who was an amputee fetishist it was a good Mm -hmm. and decent and loving relationship because she was that to him and everything else she was too 
So don't necessarily right. run from somebody who fetishizes baldness. Could be a great guy who can love all of you and really love that and really get off on that. And, you know, the amputee mm-hmm. I talked to, that was a slightly problem for her because this person was aroused by what was the most traumatic thing that ever happened to her in her life. She lost an arm. Yeah, that's wild. Yeah. And to, to have somebody who like that arouses them, not the trauma, not the accident, but the physical evidence of it or. or, or wow. And she got past that. Yeah. And found love. Yeah. And I actually interviewed her when she was in her 70s. This was a 30, 40 year relationship she'd been in. Wow, that's amazing. There's hope yet. And if you think that I'm sort of on the right track, which is putting it out there, not hiding it. But of course, you're going to meet people organically when you're wearing a wig and you don't need to like throw off the wig right then. (laughs) I will wish you a Yahtzee moment where you meet somebody out there with your wig. And when you do disclose, it turns out that they were a bald fetishist (laughs) where you like win a fucking lottery. Yeah. That's also happened for people I know where they like disclose their like really rare kink that has gotten them dumped a million times. And the person that they disclose this to with so much worry and hand wringing turns out to actually be into that too. That is the thing that has also happened. Well, good, good luck. It was really nice talking to you. Call us back in a, I don't know, six months, a year. Let us know how your dating life is going. I definitely will. And thank you so much for taking the time to call me. My pleasure. Thanks. Hey, Dan, 33 year old bi guy here living in a larger Midwest city. I've got a conundrum hoping you can help me with. I have found a girl who is like 100% sexually compatible with me. And I'm moving away like a thousand miles away in a couple months. And I've told her that, told her I'm moving but I have left it open as to what our status is going to be because of that. And I don't know what to do. Is it fair for me to, in a way, keep her on the hook because we're so compatible in like every way? Or is that a dick move? I'm not sure. You told her that you're moving away. You're allowing her to make an informed choice about whether to continue to fuck you and date you and hang out with you. I want to circle back to something I said earlier about short-term relationships can be wonderful. And maybe that's how you should approach this with her. This is likely to be a wonderful short-term relationship, not because you're going to discover something about me that's such a turnoff or a deal breaker or, or I'll discover something about you, but because circumstance is going to pull us apart. And then let it be what it is for as long as it is. And it could be that You move away and you guys have such a strong connection that you keep circling back or visiting. And there are lots of examples out there, couples who are together still, together today, who felt the same way that you did at the outset of the relationship. That they were, one of them was going off to grad school or med school or moving away to join the Peace Corps. And so they shouldn't bother dating each other because they didn't have a future. And then they had such a wonderful connection. They moved heaven and earth to get themselves back in the same place. That could be what happens here. This could be a successful short-term relationship as long as you keep being as honest and transparent with her as you have been. Or it could be a successful open-ended until one of you is fucking dead LTR. You just don't know. And it doesn't make sense to end a relationship because of what might not be. You should enjoy the relationship for what it might be. And again, might be a successful STR. But you never know. Could be a successful LTR too. 
Hey, Jan, this is a response to the uh, most recent podcast with a woman whose husband has been smoking. Suggestion is the nicotine patch or nicotine patch. Um, the guy I've been seeing has been wearing them for seven years, and that's the thing that stopped him from smoking. He still gets the same or nicotine rush um, without any of those bad side effects. Hi, guys. Um, I'm calling about episode 589 in regards to the young lady who wanted to have her first sex party. You gave great advice. Um, the only thing is that you mentioned talking, and talking is great, but they're kind of young. And I think something that they can do is have different colored ribbons that the people can use to um, say what they can, what they're into, what they aren't into. Um, if they want to get a little bit classier, you know, maybe different colored carnations or something, or even different colored silk scarves, which could be used later, you know. But yeah, just something that they that can identify for everybody what you are into and what you aren't into. Hi, this is a comment for the woman on the last episode who comes too quick from anal and needs to have to pull out or it becomes painful. I actually have the same problem and just keep a vibrator nearby. And right after you come, you know, you just take that minute, like Jan said, put the vibrator in and everything works. And then you get to enjoy another orgasm from anal. So works for us. Maybe give it a try. And we're going to leave it there. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. You can also make an MP3 of your question on your computer and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. If you like my political rants at the top of the show, you will love me on Blabbermouth with Rich Smith and Pulitzer Prize winning journalist Eli Sanders, where we review the news of the week. Go look for Blabbermouth wherever you get your podcasts. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Justin Lay Miller on Twitter at Justin Lay Miller. And follow Adam Rippon on Twitter at A-D-A-R-I-P-P. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me, I'm the tech savvy at Risk Youth and Nancy. We'll all be back at you next week for an installment of Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.